Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This too is the word of God for the people of God. It may be surprising to none of you um, that I occasionally find myself in theological, ideological, generally illogical arguments. Um, And it's not that I have some overwhelming need to prove myself right, it's just that I know I am. (laughs) That's not entirely true. But I don't mind a debate in any arena. I don't follow the turn the other cheek uh, command all that well. So it will also surprise none of you uh, when I tell you that I often got into spirited debates with the office administrator at the church that I served before I came here. They were largely done in love, um, even if they were loud, and we certainly still counted each other friends. Um, One particular discussion stands out to me, and I can't remember how it started or what the finer points of our argument were, um, but we were debating stand-your-ground laws, and we got louder and louder until finally the admin yelled, do you think that Jesus would just lay down and take it if someone tried to kill him? She was not, she was not being sarcastic, and I, uh, I genuinely fell down from laughing uh, because he, he literally did that. I don't, I don't tell that story to make one of us look good or the other look bad. We were both behaving pretty badly during that argument. Um, I tell this story because I think that we often miss the point of these teachings of Jesus, this aspect of Jesus's identity often challenges us and chafes us. These verses from Matthew 5, uh, which are part of the Sermon on the Mount, they're often overlooked because either we believe that we cannot do them or we, we don't want to. <laughs> Turning the other cheek when we're attacked, giving more than what is asked of us, going that extra mile, those can feel like impossible asks. Then in the verse immediately following our passage for this morning, Jesus tells his hearers that they are to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. So Jesus is asking, Jesus is asking for a lot. Uh, We're being set up for failure here, aren't we? We're only human after all. But maybe, maybe Jesus doesn't mean it, or at least he doesn't mean for us always to follow these commands. It was a different time, after all. We live in a global society with the internet and stuff, and I can't turn the other cheek when someone comes for me on Twitter. Um, or maybe, maybe Jesus knew that his hearers couldn't actually do this, but it's, it's the thought that counts. You know, I, I didn't stop for the guy that was asking money at the intersection, but I thought about it. Or maybe Jesus, he was just setting up his hearers for the reality of grace, like, hey friends, here are some really tough commandments that you're going to fail at, 
Um, but just wait until you hear about grace. It's going to blow your minds. I went yesterday uh, to see one of our wonderful youth in her high school uh, production of Sister Act, the musical. If you've seen the movie or the show, you know the story. A young lounge singer witnesses her boyfriend uh, commit a murder, and then she has to go into hiding in a convent. She goes undercover as a nun, and she introduces her own style of music to the convent, which then starts to bring tons of people into the church, which uh, was on the brink of closing. It had been previously in really bad shape. And it's exciting, and the people are energized, and the church is full, but not everyone is pleased. The mother superior, uh, who is used to church being a certain way, she really struggles with this new music and the new crowd. She talks about how the church is, a, is supposed to be a safe place with safe walls that protect them, um, but she's really struggling with all of these people now in the building. That's not to say she's not devout and faithful, because she is, but it's also, it's also kind of ironic. She sings this song in the second half of the show, lamenting everything that's happening to her and to the church. She says, I've got bikers and addicts and punks in the pew, several drag queens and even a handful of Jews. Lord, can you blame me at all if I choose to despair? I hope you can see sort of where I'm going. She says, I thought I'd get a glimpse of glory. I thought I'd get a taste of grace. I thought I'd bring your kingdom closer to earth. It seems like the Mother Superior has sort of confused what the kingdom of God is going to look like if she thinks that the punks and the bikers and the drag queens are not meant to be there. She's been studying and hearing and following the words of Jesus her whole life. But when it comes to things that make her uncomfortable, things that challenge her worldview, it's just easier to ignore those sayings of Jesus. She misses the deepest truth of the gospel, the vision for the kingdom of God, which is broad and welcoming and full of love. And I think that that is where Jesus's words in Matthew 5 can take us to. Like, this is all well and good, Jesus, until it's something that I don't want to change about myself or about the church or about my community, or if it deals with a person that I don't actually like that much. See, there are plenty of ways to try to get out of these instructions in Matthew 5 to avoid striving for these lofty sayings. The problem is, when you read the whole Gospel of Matthew, you realize that Jesus means exactly what he says. Disciples are to love their neighbors and their enemies just as they love themselves, because in this way we imitate God, which is the very goal of discipleship. And to make matters worse or better, depending on who you ask, the passage from Leviticus, it tells us pretty much the same thing. Jesus is not kidding. He is not setting us up for failure. He is calling his hearers to live as though the realm of God is already present. This text is not meant to shame, even if it does chafe at us, but rather it sets forth God's vision of God's world where love, genuine and unconditional, reigns. That is the expectation of the call of following Jesus. 
an enacted love that is not satisfied with the minimum or the standard or the comfortable. New Testament scholar uh, Charles Cusar wrote, these statements are uncompromising and shocking. Misunderstood, they can easily be dismissed as utopian. When taken legalistically and made the standard for community life, they have rarely been productive. They describe very unnatural responses and in effect assail the consciousness of the reader, forcing the contemplation of something other than business as usual. Forcing the contemplation of something other than business as usual. This section of the Sermon on the Mount is often referred to by scholars and preachers as the antitheses because of the way that they're structured, right? Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus repeats some conventionally held wisdom and then ups the ante or uh, reimagines it in light of the kingdom of God enacted by Jesus's very existence. But referring to them as the antitheses has often encouraged an interpretation that suggests that maybe Jesus stood in opposition to the Torah. Jesus is expressing his authority here uh, on the mount, and it is something new, but it does not contradict or do away with the commands of the Old Testament. As Jesus said himself, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. These antitheses, these chafing commands, as I said before, are very similar to what we find in the Torah, particularly in our passage from Leviticus. In both, the heart of the instruction is about caring, caring for the other, caring for them extravagantly. But perhaps an even more striking connection between the two passages is found in verses that I didn't actually include in our readings for this morning, because I am not great at planning ahead. Um, but Leviticus 19, verses 1 and 2 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy, because I am holy, says the Lord. And then Matthew 5, 48 reads, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect holiness and perfection. That's what these two passages are about. They are each a call, a command to imitate God in our action that we too may be holy. And I'm not sure this uh, helps my argument that these instructions can't be ignored or don't set us up for failure. But what, what is it that holiness looks like? If that's what we're aiming for, what ought we be doing? The verses in Leviticus, um, it offers us these couplets that end with, I am the Lord, further enforcing this connection between God's holiness and our holiness. In Leviticus often, it gets a bad rap, and maybe rightly so. It's a lot of laws that can feel like minutia that doesn't really apply to us anymore. But as one writer puts it, Leviticus records more words from the mouth of God than any book of the Bible. So holiness, according to Leviticus, it extends love and concern to the poor and to the alien. It requires sharing material and financial resources. It requires truth-telling and ethical practices in business, civics, and personally. It requires impartial justice. It rejects gossip or anything that prevents you from seeing the neighbor or alien as a beloved child of God. 
and it rejects vengeance, hatred, and lies, and an ends justify the means rationalization. This list of laws ends with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that last one may feel like business as usual, but it cannot be love if it doesn't include all of the things that have come before it. A holy life, therefore, has concrete economic consequence and is lived with a view towards the most vulnerable neighbor. A holy life, per Leviticus 19, is not about wearing halos, but rather wearing the scars that may result from living and loving faithfully in response to God's holiness. Now, we've already talked about uh, what holiness is according to Matthew, what perfection looks like for Matthew, turning the other cheek, giving more than what is asked of us. Matthew 5 is also giving us instructions for how we care about others. In Matthew, Jesus expands both the scope of God's holiness and the Levitical notion of who our neighbor is, even to include love of our enemies. It pushes an embodied love to new limits. Friend of Morningside, Dr. Chris Holmes, writes this about Matthew 5. Each of these antitheses can be understood as an elaboration of the love command. Many of Jesus' statements stem from the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' teaching do not only elaborate or expand the love command, they also radicalize and internalize it. Elsewhere, Jesus indicates that sinful behaviors like murder, adultery, theft, false witness, slander originate in the heart. The antitheses, too, identify the heart as the control center for right action. What these two passages, which are paired together in the lectionary, tell me is that God has always cared about how we treat others. From Leviticus to Jesus, our holiness is measured by the way that we care for other people. Holiness is about love, and not business as usual love, but a radical, unhindered, extra mile kind of love that does not concern itself with who the recipient is. Enemy or friend, immigrant or felon, Republican or Democrat, this love, this vision of God's kingdom is not satisfied with good enough or with the way that things have always been done. And that's not to say that this is easy, not that I think that anything I've said so far implied any kind of simplicity. All of these things I said are at the top are still true. These are big asks that extend far beyond what is standard, and we are still humans. We are caught in this tension between human nature and being children of God, being asked to be perfect as our creator is perfect and being, you know, creatures. And yet we're not let off the hook either. Perfection, holiness, is less about getting things right and more about loving as God loves. We have to make the choice to love extravagantly. We have to make the choice to go the second mile, even after we've gone the first. We have to make the choice to go beyond business as usual. In the letter to the Colossians, it's written, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The chapter lists all these other good qualities to put on, like kindness and generosity, but in the end, it's about love. 
that imagery of clothing oneself in love, it is a choice. Like when you decide to put on the red shirt or the blue shirt, the jeans or the dress, we choose it. And clothing wraps us, it covers us, it will then affect everything that we do. If we clothe ourselves in love, our behavior is changed. Old Testament scholar Walter Kayser wrote, to be holy is to roll up one's sleeves and to join in with whatever God is doing in the world. And I like that imagery too, the idea of actively participating, of getting our hands dirty in the name of the kingdom of God. So we clothe ourselves in love and then we roll up our sleeves. And that I think is what is at the heart of these two passages, of these calls to holiness. It rejects passivity and the status quo and demands that we do more, demands that we act in love. This is not the part of the sermon where I tell you that we're doing a good job. Um, This is not the moment that I obfuscate on all of the accomplishments of all the positive things that are happening here. I'm not going to list my commitments uh, to holiness. That's not to say that I couldn't or that those things don't exist. But it's not really the point of Jesus's message, is it? Matthew 5 and Leviticus 19, um, they are not opportunities for the hearer or the reader to pat themselves on the back. They would have been shocking and challenging uh, for the first hearers, even as they are for us today. Instead, this is an opportunity, an invitation, and even a demand that we examine what business as usual looks like for us and then challenges us to go the extra mile. What have we called good enough? And what could we be doing better? What would change if we clothed ourselves more fully in love? What would we give? How would we think? Where would we go? That challenge is going to be ever before us as we continue through this Matthew 25 process. This whole denominational initiative requires us to examine what we can be doing better, what we need to change in order to become a more vital congregation to to dismantle structural racism and eradicate poverty. Because we recognize that the church universal has not done enough, that we have not gone far enough in care for our neighbor, We have not taken to heart Jesus' words to give more, offer more, to love more. The Matthew 25 initiative wouldn't exist if business as usual was good enough. So it will ask us to get uncomfortable and ask us hard questions so that we, this community, can do better. You know, one of the imperatives that's listed in the Matthew 25 text that inspired the program is to clothe the naked. I think that those imperatives ought to be taken literally, and I think we are literally asked to feed the hungry and to literally clothe the naked. But we are also called to clothe our neighbors, all of our neighbors, with love, to offer them dignity and wholeness and justice in all its forms. And that starts with what we choose to put on ourselves. Will we put on love so that we can be holy, so that we can roll up our sleeves and join in what God is doing in the world? I hope and believe that we will, 
And may it be so first in me and in us all. Amen.